Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is John chapter 8 where my Bible is opened up. And right now would be a dandy time for you to open up your Bible to John chapter 8 as well. We're going to read one verse there in just a moment. That'll form the basis for everything that we want to talk about from the Word of God this morning. John chapter 8. As you're turning there, let me just join in the welcome and let me also say a very heartfelt thank you for not being out of town today like so many of our fall break travelers are. I'm thankful that you chose to stay here and I'm glad that you are here. And I should say as well, I'm glad to be here. I bring you greetings from the High Street Church in Paris. Had a really good week with those folks last week, but I am always so very glad to be back home, to get to join in the great singing that we've had this morning, to bow our hearts and minds and prayer that our brother Luke led us in just a moment ago. Just really great to be here and I I hope that you can say the same. I hope that you're ready to study the Bible for these next few minutes as we return to our preaching theme for 2018 where we are spending some very focused time with Jesus. We are coming to know Him and His character and His nature through the Word. We're encountering Jesus in the Gospel so that we can draw closer to Him. And this morning that brings us to John chapter 8. This is verse number 12. John 8 verse 12, there we're told, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. If I could direct your attention to the screen behind me, what you are looking at is an artist's rendition of the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Situated on the northeast coast of Alexandria, Egypt, as it faces out to the Mediterranean Sea, this lighthouse was commissioned by Ptolemy II, and it actually ended up becoming kind of the, uh, the prototype, the gold standard for every lighthouse that came after it. It was built in the mid-3rd century B.C. And second only to the Great Pyramid of Egypt, it was the tallest building in the world at that time. It stood 45 stories high, constructed out of solid limestone blocks, And it was a functional lighthouse for more than 1,500 years, if you can believe that. Now, of course, in a time when electricity had not yet been invented, that lighthouse had to get its light from, well, from another source. And so by day, that lighthouse got its light from the sun. And by night, it got its light from a fire that was lit in a furnace there situated in the top of the tower. That light was then reflected off of a giant curved mirror, probably a a bronze curved mirror that was positioned at the apex of the tower, which was then able to reflect and send a beam of light out across the sea 35 miles into the Mediterranean. That's a long distance. 35 miles away, that light was able to shine. That's really some pretty impressive and amazing engineering for that day and time. To be able to project a beam of light that great of a distance and illuminate the way for countless ships at sea, it is no wonder then that it was recognized as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. However, 300 years after its construction, the lighthouse of Alexandria had to settle for being the second greatest lighthouse in the world. Because around that time, a man named Jesus of Nazareth burst onto the scene. 
And through His actions and His example and through His words, He proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Of the whole world, I am the light. That is one of the famous I am statements of Jesus. And unlike some of the other I am statements of Jesus that maybe don't register and resonate as much with us today, think for example about I am the good shepherd. Eh, I don't really know anything about shepherding. and I've never really spent much time around sheep. Or maybe when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Some of you may be thinking, well, I don't... I don't eat bread. I have a a wheat allergy or it's got gluten in it and so I can't eat that. So bread really doesn't mean much to me. But when Jesus comes along here and He says, I am the light of the world, I think that's something that all of us can grab onto. All of us can identify with that metaphor because light is so important to our daily lives. Think about it right now. We are the beneficiaries of 101 bulbs of light illuminating this auditorium. And yes, I went around and counted the number of bulbs yesterday afternoon. And that's in addition to the natural light of the sun that's shining through and peeking through the blinds and the windows. We understand about light. We need light. There is value to light. We recognize just how essential it is to our lives. And so Jesus borrows that idea and then personifies Himself. Not just as a light, not just as one of many lights, but as the light. The light of the world, that is a statement that we are just drawn to. It just pulls us. In fact, we sang that in the song that we just sung. Did you notice that? Often the storm, the idea of we're out here on the sea. Often the storm, lonely are we, it's storming out there. But then what's the song say? Jesus is there. He is the light. That, that really resonates and hits close to home with us. Question, do you know why Jesus said that? Do you know where Jesus was when He spoke in John 8 verse 12? Do you know what was going on around Jesus that occasioned those words? And most importantly of all, do you know what Jesus wants you to know about that great statement? This morning I do want to spend just a few minutes with Jesus so that we can better understand, better appreciate, and better respond to that one who said, I am the light of the world. And the way that we need to start that is actually just by noting some things about the setting. Just exactly where is Jesus when He makes this statement? You know, one of the problems with these famous sayings of Jesus is that they're just so, they're so captivating and they're so powerful and they're so often quoted that many times we talk about them almost kind of in a vacuum. We isolate them over here by themselves and we don't pay any attention to the fact that actually those words are spoken in a context. And that can be a problem because when we don't know the context, we're going to just miss stuff. And we're not going to get the full meaning of what's going on. And so, for example, look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Notice how verse 12 begins. It does not begin with the red letters, does it? No. Verse 12 begins by saying, again, Jesus spoke to them. Uh Now, Now, that's a clue right there. Underline that word, again. That tells us that this is part of an ongoing conversation. 
In fact, verse 13 shows us who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. Talking to these Jewish leaders. And if you drop even further down in the text, look in verse 20. You'll see where this dialogue was taking place. John chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. There we go. Jesus is in the temple. That's where this teaching takes place. That's where this statement takes place, is in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, maybe we'd like to take that a step further. Maybe we'd like to know when this teaching takes place. And guess what? John's Gospel has us covered. If you'll just step back to chapter 7. In chapter 7, just flip back a page in your Bible, here's actually kind of the the greater context. Here's where this whole kind of episode really begins. In John chapter 7, look in verse number 2. In John 7 verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of booths. The feast of booths was at hand. This is all taking place during the Jewish feast of of booths. That's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, depending upon what translation you're reading from. It is one of the three major festivals on the Jewish calendar, along with Pentecost and the Passover. It was commanded, and the details about that are given all the way back in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, There's the verse citation. I'm not going to read those verses, but you can read that and see what God expected out of that feast. And that feast, you should know, it was celebrated every year in the fall. It actually would be celebrated right about now, late September, early October. Which means then that there would have been, would have been just lots of people in Jerusalem. Lots of people there in the temple and in the courtyard and just out throughout the city, all there to absorb, observe and to keep this important festival. And what exactly was the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles? What was that all about? Well, it was an eight day festival that was designed to commemorate God's protection and God's provisions during those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The Israelites during that time, they dwelt and lived in booths or tabernacles or maybe we just might call them tents. And so part of this festival was that they were to remember that. They actually too would take part in dwelling in booths and tents to be reminded of those 40 years that God kept them safe in the wilderness. Now, interestingly, part of that celebration of that feast was a solemn assembly in which water was poured out. There would be a ceremony where water would be drawn out from the pool of Siloam, and then it was poured out by the priest with great pomp and fanfare and pageantry. And in fact, maybe that explains why Jesus says what He says down in verse 37. Are you still here in John 7? Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, on the great day, Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this morning, we're not talking about water. We're not going to talk about the living water metaphor. But I do simply want you to see that Jesus is using His surroundings. He's using the occasion of this feast. He's using the symbolism of the things that are going on. He's using all of that to help people understand some things, not just about God, but understand some things about God's Son, Him. He's helping people understand things about who He is. And I think that's probably best illustrated when you understand that the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, that it was celebrated throughout the day 
but actually celebrated on into the night. In fact, it began on the evening of the first day, and the festival didn't conclude until the evening of the eighth day. Now you might be wondering, well, well how'd that work? You know, come on, Joshua just said a moment ago, this is before electricity. Well, what are you doing? You know, I, I can hardly even see up there on the screen. It's just so dark. It'd be dark there in the temple, be dark in the city. What, what really could you do at night as you carry out the various uh, rites and things going along with this particular celebration? Well, in the courtyard of the temple, can you make it out there? There actually stood four huge candelabras. There's actually some Jewish literature that says that those candelabras stood as tall as the highest walls of the temple. And at the top of each of those golden ornate poles would be these huge vats, these huge bowls that held maybe even as much as 20 gallons of oil. Think about how much oil, think about how big that would be. Some of our vehicles don't even hold 20 gallons of gasoline. That would be a big bowl or basin. And so each night a ladder was erected and put up against one of those poles. And then the young, healthy priests, they would carry some oil up to, to fill that candelabra. They'd fill that big bowl up. And then they'd go down and then they'd come back up with a torch. And they would light the protruding wick there in the middle of it and whoosh! Giant flames would just come leaping and soaring out from those candelabras. It would illuminate not just the court of the temple, but it actually illuminated much of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, Josephus is recorded as saying that the light that it created, it was as bright and as brilliant as the daylight. One writer said, talking about the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, he said, Men of piety and good works, they would dance before those burning torches. They would sing songs and praise while countless Levites played on the harps, the lyres, the cymbals, and the trumpets, rejoicing, rejoicing for what God had done for them all the way until the morning dawn. You see, this festival, this feast, it was a joyous occasion. I think sometimes we look at those feasts in the Old Testament and we think, man, that that would just be a lot of work, a lot of hassle to have to do all of that. But not for these people. These people were celebrating. They would celebrate annually God's care for His people during that time in the wilderness. And so, in that setting, in the wake of all the singing and all the dancing, and maybe I ought to just say here that the dancing, there's nothing lascivious. This isn't lascivious dancing. This is dancing out of joy before the Lord. In the midst of the singing and the dancing and the rejoicing, underneath the blazing bright light, of those temple candelabras, Jesus steps forward in John 8 verse 12 and He announces, I am the light of the world. What's Jesus doing there? What is Jesus trying to accomplish by saying that? Why would He make that announcement right there? Well, first and foremost, it seems to me that Jesus is very clearly tying Himself to the Old Testament. If you were there that day in the middle of that temple, and there's these giant candelabras, they're just burning and blazing, and people are singing and they're praising God, and they're celebrating God's care and provision for His people, and they're remembering back through history. They're remembering how God had led the Israelite people by day in the pillar of cloud. 
And how He led them at night in that pillar of fire to give them light. They thought about how God saved them from their enemies, saved them from the Egyptians. How God guided them safely into the promised land. As you're thinking about all of that, I think your mind would very naturally make a connection between God and light. In fact, that association with God's presence and light, well, that's something that carried out throughout, not just the Exodus, but that's carried all throughout the Old Testament. Can I show you that in a couple of places? Look in the book of Psalms, for example. In Psalm chapter 27, this is a well-known psalm. We actually have a song that we sing regularly, and it's taken directly from this passage. In Psalm 27, this is a psalm of David. David begins that psalm in verse 1 by saying, The Lord is my light, and He is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice there, David says that God's light, it just has a way of dispelling the darkness. It provides safety. It gives us comfort when we are fearful. David says that. Look, Continue further. Look at Psalm 44. In Psalm 44, the psalmist says here in verse 3, in Psalm 44 and in verse 3, the psalmist says, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand, God, your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Love the idea here. The psalmist basically says that God's smile just, it lights up the world. Light is being used here as a metaphor for God's grace and for His favor. In fact, if you'll continue looking further, look in the prophets. Look in Isaiah, please. In Isaiah chapter 60, what you'll see is that not only only does God describe Himself as light, God also is going to speak through His prophet and He is going to announce that the Messiah, the one who is to come, He too will be spoken of in terms of light. In Isaiah 60, this is a messianic prophecy. In Isaiah 60 and in verse 19, we're told there that the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Verse 20, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. This isn't a light that goes away. It just keeps going on and on and on. And your days of mourning shall be ended. The Messiah is going to come. And He is going to bring light to the world. And in the very introduction to the Gospel of John, John actually wants to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Word. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Would you look in John chapter 1 please? In John chapter 1, in the opening verses, notice how Jesus is described. In John chapter 1, Jesus, the Word, verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then in verses 6 and 7 and 8, there's some things said about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist rightfully recognized, verse 8, that he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the one who would be the light. Verse 9 now, the true light, which enlightens everyone, he was coming into the world. And so the Old Testament talks about light. talks about how God is light. 
It talks about how God gave Israel His light to guide them in the promised land. The Old Testament as well points forward to a time when God would send the Messiah to bring light to all of mankind. And John says that that time, that time has arrived. And so, by the time we get to John chapter 8 and verse 12, in the middle of this very important festival, this festival that is celebrated with light, Jesus stands up in the middle of everyone and He says... That right there, that's me. That's me. Those things that you've read about and heard about all your life, that's talking about me. Your Messiah is here. All the promises, all the prophecies from the Old Testament, they were pointing to me. That plan that God has so carefully been working out since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden, as He's moved countless nations and countless people in order to bring about salvation, it has worked its way out to this moment in me. I am, Jesus says, the light of the world. What God had been showing these people for a long time in types and in shadows, it was now there in their midst, in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Me, Jesus says. I am the fulfillment of God's great plan. And as we think about that, maybe we're looking at that and we're thinking, okay, Josh, all right, that would have been very helpful for the Jews then, but well, what's the big deal for us about this? Well, I think this is a great place for us to be reminded of the Bible's one unified story. You know, I certainly understand why it is that we have an Old and a New Testament. I understand about that, and certainly there is value to that, that differentiation and that division, if you will. But I also understand that that can be very destructive to how some people think about the Bible. Because in our world today, it's out with the old and in with the new. Just get rid of the old. We don't need the old. Don't need to pay attention to the old because we've got the new. But don't you see? Don't you see? You'll never fully understand the new without the old. The old is just working its way into the new. And the new is merely fulfilling what the old had been telling us all along. Jesus' statement about being the light of the world, it was designed to remind a nation, a nation of people that were dwelling upon God's past efforts and God's past workings, to remind them that, you know what? God is still at work. In fact, God is doing His greatest work in the manifestation of Jesus Christ the light of the world. You should know, though, that that is not the only thing that Jesus is trying to convey in John 8, verse 12. Secondly, I would tell you that Jesus is certainly stressing the importance of following after Him. Look again at the verse. If you're still there in John, look in John 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness. You see, it's, it's about following, isn't it? I want you to please notice that Jesus does not say, now, whoever receives the light, no. Nor does Jesus say, whoever admires the light, stands back at a distance and just kind of admires the light. No. Jesus says, you have to follow the light. That's what Israel did in the wilderness with that pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, right? They followed the light from Egypt 
into Canaan. And so these people here in John chapter 7 and 8, they would have been thinking about that. As they reflected back on those 40 years in the wilderness, they would have been thinking about how our forefathers, our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, etc., 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 they followed God's light. And so Jesus builds upon that to say, hey, just as they followed the light then, you need to follow the light now. You need to follow me. Can we think about that for a moment in just very practical terms, how exactly that would have worked? Imagine if you were an Israelite and you're living during the time of that 40 years in the wilderness. And imagine you, okay, one day you it seems like we're kind of going to camp now, so I'm going to pitch my tent over here, going to get all that set up, and maybe an hour later, all of a sudden, the cloud, the cloud starts moving. What do you do? I tell you what you do. You're going to have to pick the stakes up and pack your tent up, and you got to get on the move too. If the cloud starts moving, you got to follow that cloud. And of course, if the cloud stops, what do you got to do? Can't just keep on going, can you? No, got to stop. We're following the light. Now, to do that, what would that require on your part? Well, that would certainly require some faith, right? Faith that God knows where we're going. That would require some trust that God is going to lead us in the right direction. But you know what? More than just faith and trust, it also is going to involve some obedience. It's not enough to say, well, hey, look, well, there goes the cloud. Yep. That, that is, that's the guidance of God right there. Boy, I tell you what, God is the light. God's showing us the way and there it goes. Me? No, I'm kind of tired of walking. I think I'll just, I'm going to kind of camp out here for a while. I'll catch up with the light later. I'll follow some other time. That's not following the light, is it? That's faith without obedience, which is really not even faith at all. You have to get up and you have to go. The Feast of Tabernacles was reminding everybody about the guidance of God and how that only works when we combine our faith and our action together so that not only do we believe what God says, but we are actively doing what God says. That's what following is all about. Now, I emphasize that point this morning because it seems that we are living in a society and in a time when a lot of people want to tell themselves that they are followers of the light. In fact, there's probably lots of people this very morning who are sitting in church buildings and they have told themselves and they are telling others, yes, I follow the light. I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet by the way they live their lives and the things that they are doing, nothing could be further from the truth. They might be believers... They are not followers. Following Jesus means trusting and obeying Jesus. Obeying Jesus in all things. You had to have both of those elements to follow God in the wilderness. And you have to have both of those things to do what Jesus says in John 8 verse 12. And once again, right here is a wonderful spot for us to just pause and let's inspect our own lives very carefully. Am I trusting Jesus and obeying Him? Because that, that's, that's what following is. Or is it possible that there are certain parts and corners of my life where Jesus' guidance just really is not welcome? Because Jesus' ways, don't you know, some things Jesus says are just kind of outdated. 
They're kind of old-fashioned. And well, I'm just kind of doing what works for me just to kind of be able to, to, to kind of, you know, accommodate to the times. Listen to me. That is not following the light. Is it possible that Jesus' plan for the church about how a church is to work and how a church is to worship and how a church is to be organized, is it possible that we have said, eh, that's just, I tell you what, that's just not going to get it done in these times today. You know, we, we can't compete with all of these big mega churches doing things the way Jesus said to do them explicitly. We need to be able to, to flex and bend and kind of adapt to the times. Listen to me. That is not following the light. What about in our marriages? In our marriages, do we respect the roles that Jesus has given to husbands and to wives? Or have we decided that somehow that also needs to be modernized? That needs to be able to fit with the culture in 2018 America. Listen to me. That's not following the light. What about personally? What about when it comes to principles of holiness and purity and what it means to be unstained and unspotted from the world? Have we decided that, well, I'll tell you what, the New Testament's got a lot of good stuff in there, but i tell you what, lots of other parts of it really needs to be updated. It needs to be updated so as to suit my choices of recreation, my choices of entertainment, my choices of clothing, my choices of friends. Listen to me. That is not following the light. Do you see how easy it is for a person to say, oh yes, 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 I follow Jesus. question is, are you really? Are we really following the light? Am I trusting and obeying Him? Remember, the light of the world came here not to merely be admired and looked at and talked about in all kinds of abstract terms. No! The light came here to be followed. I am the light of the world, John 8 verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Can you focus your mind on that expression there about walking in darkness? I think thirdly and finally what Jesus is showing us here is that if you don't follow Him, then you are in darkness. And that is absolutely not where you want to be. Now that note about light versus darkness, that really is something that is stitched all throughout the Bible. But can we notice how that's used specifically here in John again? Would you just look in John chapter 3? In John chapter 3, these are the words of Jesus. Everybody, I guess, is familiar with verse 16 of that chapter. But what about some of the verses that follow it? Well, look at John 3 verse 19. There Jesus says, this is the judgment. That light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does not come to the light, verse 20, or excuse me, verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus says that our world lies in darkness. And without Him in the picture, there is no light at all. Instead, there is just a plunging of being deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. And unfortunately, people today, by and large, they don't want to believe that. 
People today have told themselves, you know what, I can be good without God. In fact, that seems to be something that the atheists really love to, to tout and to spout. I can be good without God. I don't need all that religion and the Bible to be a good person. I can set my own values and my own agenda without having to bring Jesus into it. But what happens? What happens when people think that they can set their own moral compass without the Lord's involvement? I'll tell you what happens. What happens is the same thing that happens to a sailor who's out in the middle of a storm-tossed sea And he's out there in the middle of the rain and the waves and the winds and the darkness. And he says to himself, I don't need a lighthouse. I don't. I don't need any help. I don't need any light. I'm doing just fine on my own. I can find the harbor all by myself. And the next thing you know, he's either run aground or he's lost himself at sea. And when people today think that they can navigate through this dark world without Jesus... That's exactly what happens. They crash spectacularly. They fall. They get hurt. They stumble around. They get lost. In fact, have you noticed, have you noticed just how much people are stumbling around in our society today? I saw a video clip the other day uh, where it was this program and the, the host of the program, uh, he had kind of a bunch of, a bunch of kids, kind of a panel of children, And he asked them the question, do you think that you have an obligation to care for your parents whenever they're old? Now, I I thought that was a softball. I thought that was a no-brainer. I figured everybody understood and knew what the right answer was to that. You know, there are actually species of animals, of flocks and herds and kinds, that they actually just instinctively, they take care of their old. And yet, a number of these kids, in response to that question, they said... No. No, I'm not taking care of my mom and dad when they're old. I'm not doing that. You know, I I thought that was pretty fundamental. But I guess I really shouldn't be surprised that people would stumble about something like that when you consider that in our society today, we can't even decide on the definition of what marriage is. And I always thought that was pretty fundamental too. Do you see how our world has just been plunged into darkness? Do you see the confusion and the problems that occur whenever you don't let the light come in? Our world is just a maze of conflicting values and ideas, many of which just don't make any sense, and most of which seem to just be made up on the fly, just made up on the spot to justify doing what I want to do so that I can have pleasure and I can have fun. But when you reject the light of the world, that's what you get. You get darkness. In fact, when you reject the light, there's actually a great danger that you're going to end up becoming hostile to the light. Did you know that? If you're still there, John, look at chapter 8 again. Because that conversation that Jesus has with these Jews, it doesn't end in verse 12. No, Jesus keeps talking to them. Keeps talking to them and trying to persuade them throughout the rest of the chapter. Trying to convince them that He is who He says He is. But by the end of the chapter, would you notice, look at verse 59. Look at their response. Verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at Him. They're trying to stone the light. They're angry at the light. And so Jesus, being wise and prudent, 
He gets out of the temple. And in chapter 9, as he's leaving the temple, what happens next? Do you know this story? Jesus encounters a man who had been blind from birth. Jesus heals him, has compassion on him, gives him his sight. Here is a man who has been in physical darkness for all of his life. And the Lord helps him to be able to see not just the physical light, but the Lord enables him to see the spiritual light. Notice what Jesus says about that in chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus says, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Well, why can't you work at night? Well, because it's dark outside. Verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Do you remember how the rest of this story goes? Does everybody there who who saw that and saw the man being healed, does everybody just kind of line up and say, Wow, that's amazing! Jesus, that was awesome! You healed that guy! He hadn't been able to see for his whole life, and now he's able to see. He's walking and running, and he's going everywhere now. Wow, that's amazing! Is that how that went? Nope. Nope. Those religious leaders, those Pharisees, those Jews... They were so resistant to the light that they actually ratcheted up their efforts to stop the light. Doing everything that they can to shut Jesus down. They're trying to turn off the light. In fact, what we have in John chapter 9 is the story of a man born blind who can see. And then there's a whole bunch of other people in the story who were born able to see and yet they are completely blind. And that sounds like an awful lot of people that I know today. People who are determined to just remain in the dark. People who refuse. People who will not, stubbornly, will not look and see the light. And why? Because the light exposes the ugliness and the wickedness that is in their hearts. The light exposes the vanity and the emptiness of the way they have lived their lives. The light exposes the painful truth that I am a sinner and that I am lost. That, that is painful. And that is a hard pill to have to swallow. But I'm here to tell you this morning, That when you hear and understand and accept that bad news, that actually puts you in a marvelous position to hear and accept and respond to the good news. Because this very same Jesus who gives the bad news about the darkness is also the same Jesus who says, if you will follow me, then you're not ever going to have to worry about stumbling and fumbling around in the dark anymore. If you follow me, you won't even have to be afraid of the dark anymore. Because John 8 verse 12 says, you will have the light of life. What about you this morning? Do you need that? Do you want that? God has certainly, number one, He has labored diligently throughout time and throughout history in order to bring it to you. Secondly, Jesus, He is offering it to you freely if you will trust Him and if you will follow Him. And thirdly, I am certain that the devil is fighting tooth and nail. 
He's punching and kicking. He's clawing and scratching. Doing everything that He can to keep it from getting to you. But you have the opportunity right now. You have the opportunity right now to lay hold of that light of life. You have the opportunity right now to allow God to transfer you out of the domain of darkness and place you into the marvelous light of His beloved Son. And you can do that this morning in a relatively short period of time by rendering your obedience to the gospel of Jesus the Christ. As we prepare to sing the song that's been selected as an invitation song, if there's someone here this morning who needs help in dying to sin, crucifying the old man in the waters of baptism, or brother or sister, if there's someone here this morning who needs to repent, who needs to turn things around and needs to to pray for forgiveness, then we stand ready to assist you in whatever way that we can. So that you and I and all of us together, we can follow the light of the world. The light that ultimately will guide us to our promised land. If you need help in any way in that direction, would you simply come forward and make your wishes known? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.